we have a red light, we are good to go. So welcome, this is Abnormal Psychology. Today's topic is going to be schizophrenia and psychotic disorders. So this is chapter 10 in our book. Um, we, this chapter has kind of changed. If we were doing this prior to May of 2013, there's many different categories of schizophrenia. You're gonna find that they kind of combined them together because there was a lot of overlap. Um, so just to let you know ahead of time. We've got about 46 slides to make it through. We will not make it through the whole thing today. My goal is to make it through as much as we can. And then when we get together next class, I'm gonna wrap it up. And then I have some films to show you that um, display some of the symptoms of schizophrenia and psychotic symptoms. So just to let you know, that's the game plan. So let's go ahead and take a look at this. So psychosis, what is psychosis? What well, is a severe psychological disturbance involving personality disorganization and loss of contact with reality. You know, one of the things that, uh, you know, people talked about um, dissociative identity disorder, we've talked about that, um, and we talk about kind of split personality. Initially, split personality was related more to schizophrenia than it was to dissociative identity disorder because the person seems to split from reality, they seem to have a break, and their, their personalities, like all areas of their, their functioning seem to be impacted in one way or another. So that's some of the stuff that we see. So again, personality disorganization and loss of contact with reality. Um, what is psychosis? It is a, a psychotic state that includes many symptoms, and here are the kind of wide range of symptoms. Um, disturbances in language and thought, Disturbances in sensation and perception. So again, that's where hallucinations come in. Oftentimes we think it's hearing voices. That's just one aspect. It's any sensory uh, experience that's not attributable to the outside world. Um, disturbances in motor behavior, emotional disturbances, and then social withdrawal. So these are what we see when someone has a psychosis. Yes? So um, one of the previous categories of schizophrenia, so disturbances in motor behavior, one of the previous categories in schizophrenia was catatonic schizophrenia. And in catatonic schizophrenia, a person might be functioning just fine and then all of a sudden, And they may stay like that for 45 minutes. So again, you know, that kind of stone-like behavior, that kind of freezing, you can't see that at home. What I did was I just stood in one spot with my mouth hanging open um, for about however long that was, about 15 seconds, about all I can handle, right? Or the other thing they'll do is they'll do some repetitive moment or movements that almost seem autistic, so, you know, I might be constantly doing things like this, like flipping my arms back and forth, and it's just repetitive, or rocking in a chair, just rocking. So again, it's some kind of motor disturbance. Does that help? Yeah. Good question, right? Emotional disturbance, I think that makes sense. And social withdrawal, this is a big key. People always say, well, I'm, I'm worried about someone that's got psychotic break, right? They don't want to interact with people. They tend to pull away. They have social withdrawal, again, because nobody else is sensing what they're sensing. Imagine if you were feeling something and nobody else seems to be feeling it. You wouldn't really hang out with people because you'd be like, 
uh, you don't get it. Uh, I can't even talk to you. And so that's really, they, they have this withdrawal, if you will. Um, the history of the diagnostic category um, and the DSM-4TR. So here we go. We're going to talk about Emil Kreplin. You've heard his name before. I like Emil Kreplin. Um, Emil Kreplin, I call him the father of modern classification because he was the first one to kind of start to diagnose, at least in our modern times, um, clusters of symptoms. And he said that certain clusters seem to appear together and they seem to have certain patterns and almost a prognosis. So that's some of the stuff that we would see. That we would see. So Emil Kreplin, he talked about this idea of schizophrenia of being dementia precox. That's what he called it, right? And dementia precox really is defined as insanity at an early age. You know, sometimes we associate um, the elderly inappropriately with senility, where they seem to lose track with the reality and they seem to kind of fall apart. That does happen for some, but it's not, the, it's not for all cases, right? Um, but Emil Kreplin saw this as dementia, some kind of dementia precox at an early age. Um, Eugene Bluler observed that the age and onset and course of schizophrenia were more variable than originally theorized by Kreplin, so Bueller came up with what he calls his four A's. And his four A's say that schizophrenia, right, psychosis, has these four kind of areas that get impacted. One is affect, and affect has to do with your emotional responses. So affect, that's the first one. Autism. Autism has to do with stereotyped behaviors. So again, almost like a self-focus, and we kind of see that. Um, that's what, where it comes in, the motor disturbances, you know, the stereotypic motor disturbances. Um, problems with association, that's the third A. So association. So they don't link things together like you or I would. They may jump from topic to topic when discussing things. Um, they might be emotionally all over the place. They might be, um, you know, uh, association-wise, their conversations may seem very disjoint. Even the words they use might not make sense, right? And the fourth A, so we've got affect, autism, association. The fourth A is called ambivalence, almost a hesitation, if you will, like a hesitation to get involved with people, a hesitation to respond, to move forward. So those are some of the things that we see, this kind of hesitation. So affect, autism, association, ambivalence, the four A's, Bleuler associated with um, schizophrenia, right? And you see this link in your PowerPoint. There is some links in this chapter. You can click on them and get these little videos, that do little vignettes, if you will. They're about five to seven, sometimes 10 minutes long, where you can kind of watch them. This, case, this one's called um, Schizophrenia and Dissociative Disorders Crash Course Psychology Number 32. So if you're at home, you can follow along with that too. Psychosis, let's talk about disturbances of language and thought. There are too many disturbances in language of, and thought that happens when someone has some kind of psychosis or a psychotic kind of condition. Um, the first one is loosening of associations. So it's loose, disjointed dis expressions in speech. Someone who rambles and they jump from topic to topic and none of it seems to make sense. You're, you're trying to follow along. And by the way, I have some videos um, for those of you that came into class late. 
Um, I have some videos that I'm going to show you next class that kind of depicts some of these symptoms. All right, so we can look. You can look forward to that. So loose disjointed expressions in speech, sentence structure intact, but the topics may jump from topic to topic. So they seem to start down a pathway. You're like, okay, I kind of get where they're going. And all of a sudden, they just seem to derail and they go somewhere else. And you're like, where the hell did that come from? How did we get to this? Almost tangential thingy that just keeps shooting further and further away from what the focus was. And then loose associations is different than incoherence. Incoherence might be mumbling where you can't understand what they're saying. Here you understand the words, but you just can't follow the logic. That's what doesn't make sense. It's the logic that falls apart. And then the other, so the two disturbances in language and thought, the other one first is loosening of associations. The other one is delusions. And delusions are falsely held beliefs. So maybe you believe that because you didn't watch the Penn State game on the weekend, they lost. You'd watched every game this season. This is the one game you didn't watch, they lost. And it's all because of you. Make sense? You know, so you're watching, you, you, you're talking to a friend and you find out that your favorite sports team is winning. You turn on the TV and all of a sudden the game changes the opposite direction and you go, it's because I'm watching. You turn it off and guess what? They come back and you go, see, it was all about me. So again, delusions. You could have delusions of grandeur, that you're all powerful, right? Delusions of thought control, that people are controlling what's going on in your head, right? Um, so all different kinds of delusions. That's some of the stuff that we see, right? Some other disturbances that we see in language and thought, right, are things like word salad. Word salad is a collection of words that seem as if they were thrown together or tossed like a salad before presentation. Again, it's part of that. So you understand the words are being spoken clearly, but you have no idea what the sentence is that they're trying to say. So that's word salad. Clanging. Clanging is a tendency to um, say repetitive words that seem to, um, in some ways, rhyme. So, um, you know, by saying the zalman is common in Yaman Bahaman. You know, so again, it just seems to have this, this flow about it, right? So it's just something that they tend to do. Um, so it's the use of a word not because of its meaning, but because of its sound. So you can see, maybe I'm making a sentence and I'm talking, and then I'm thinking about other words like talking, walking, yawking, gawking, socking. Some of them I even make up my own little words. But they all have that kind of feel about them. It's almost, again, like this kind of repetitiveness, if you will. Neologism. Neologism are new words that the speaker invents, often combining other words. So the zalman is common and, you know, whatever. I mean, again, I make up these words that just seem to kind of fit together. Um, Elogia is an impoverished speech. So, in other words, missing words, um, not knowing what to say, um, things like that. They may have what's called hyper-metaphorical speech. It's a form of overgeneralization where they almost seem to be like, 
way over the top and you're kind of trying to follow along with them, but oh my goodness. Um, and then echolalia. And echolalia is a person who repeats whatever someone else says. So you say, you know, how are you doing today? And I go, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. You know, so again, I just repeat the same things, over, almost parroting. And it's, I'm wondering if some of that has to do with, because of the sound of what it makes. You know, it's not about, you know, I'm not even thinking. I'm not even in touch with reality and it makes sense. So again, these are, the, these are the characteristics of like psychotic language that we sometimes see. Delusions, let's talk a little bit more about delusions. So delusions are extreme convictions that are firmly held in place um, in spite of what nearly everyone else in the subculture would consider inconvertible evidence to the contrary. So they believe these things to be true. I had an inmate that I worked with and he was in for uh, murder, and uh, he, he seemed fine. He didn't have full psych psychosis, he didn't have schizophrenia, but he had a delusional disorder. So that's the reason why I'm telling you the story is because he had this characteristic delusion that he would hold on to and fall into. You could have every conversation about everything under the world, Right? Everything under the sun. You could talk about the news. He was very astute. He would read up on the news. You know, so he said, hey, so what do you, what do you think about you know, you know, how so-and-so you know, you know, did in politics? And they would be fine. They would be everything. And then you would ask them why they're in jail. And they would believe that they were waiting for George Bush, the president, to send a letter of, uh, of amnesty to release him from jail. And here's his story. He was a teenager. He lived on a farm with his father. His mother wasn't around. Um, he started getting a little strange and he would ride the edge of the property line with a loaded shotgun because he believed that he was protecting his land. Dad got a little concerned. He started to worry about his son. Thought, mm, you know, I'm, I'm feeling kind of uncomfortable about this. You know, loaded shotgun riding on his horse along the, the edge of the property line. Um, state police came over. He invited the state police over just to talk to the son. State police officer came up on the front porch. Um, the, the man opened up the door and shot him dead. And believed that he had a right to bear arms. It was protected by the Constitution. And he was defending his property because this man was coming to take his gun. If you could talk to him about everything else, but as soon as you got on that line, he believed his delusion was so locked in that he did nothing wrong and he was an innocent man and that the president knew it was just a matter of time before a letter was sent and he would be released back out in the community. And it never deviated. It was so locked in. And he just holds on to it. You know, those that believe in conspiracy theories, we might have a tendency to say they have a delusional disorder. Some almost seem real. Some almost seem right on the verge. I tell this story in my Psych 101 class. I've got an uncle who believes we didn't go to the moon. He said we never went there. 1969, there was a space race. We had to prove superiority over the Soviet Union. And so we said we went to the moon. A couple times. He said we never went once. 
So, you know, there's all these photos. If you go and search for moon conspiracy, you can find photo after photo. Well, the, the flag shouldn't be this way. Well, the shadow shouldn't be this way. If you talk to, if you go and talk to NASA experts, they weren't sure when they landed on the moon if they, the rocket would fire to get the astronauts off the planet because oxygen levels and everything. We had no idea what was going to happen. In fact, there was one interview with a, a former NASA scientist who said, we don't have the technology today to return to the moon. Well, if we don't have the technology today, then how did we do it before? So my uncle says, see, told you. In fact, he goes one step further. He goes, you know that Google Moon or Google Earth? You know, we have Google Earth. Now I guess we have Google Moon too. But back in the day when my uncle was around, he said, you know, we have Google Earth. We can zoom in and see a dog on someone's front porch, spin that sucker around and show me a moon buggy left on the surface of the moon. Because we left crap up there. We didn't bring it home. We left it. Show me one moon buggy on the surface of the moon. You can't. Because it's not there. Because we were never there. That's what he believes. And he's gotten to the point where even his wife will go, yeah. She's convinced. So she has shared delusional disorder. He has delusional disorder. She has shared delusional disorder. He also believes we shouldn't eat corn. Because corn is used to fatten livestock, and so all it's doing is fattening the human population. It's just filler. That's why when you go to the bathroom, it comes out in whole pieces. That's just my uncle. I'm just telling you. I'm not trying to gross you out. I'm just telling you, right? So again, what are delusions? They are these extreme convictions, right? They are distinguishable from ideas by their own fixedness. He does not deviate. If we go and show him Google Moon, he'll say, oh, that's all edited now. They know the argument. So they overlay other pieces to cover up whatever, you know, or, or they've planted it there. They've done some editing, right? So they've edited that scene and they've put little items on the face of the moon that don't currently exist one way or another. Again, he would be so locked in. There's a number of subtypes of delusions, and these categories of delusions are not mutually exclusive. In other words, it's not like we just have one. You could have overlaps, and um, here are some of them. So we have bizarre delusions, delusions that seem so bizarre and outrageous that they just can't be real. Delusional jealousy, believing that other people are jealous of you, of, of your performance, of who you are, believing that, again, a person is, you know, involved with someone else. So far, like way beyond like normal extremes, this is, again, almost creating these worlds of these belief systems. Um, Eteromanic uh, delusions, so again, like... Um, kind of erotic delusions that people are desiring you in some way. Um, grandiose illusions uh, or delusions, I should say. Um, so believing that you're all that in a bag of chippies. Um, mood congruent or mood incongruent delusions. Again, where you have a delusion, but it doesn't fit your mood. You say, I'm so upset right now. I feel like people are going to kill me or you know, mutilate me in some way. And you go, uh, you don't seem anxious like that would make anyone anxious if you truly believe that so why is it that you say that and they truly believe that at least in their head they do but their emotional response does not match up does that make sense 
Um, delusions of being controlled, delusions of reference, um, persecutory delusions that people are out to get you, out to punish you in some way, somatic delusions that you have some kind of illness or symptom, um, thought broadcasting, that people are listening to your thoughts, that they can pick up what you're thinking, that they're controlling it in some way. So again, I'm going to use um, some descriptions. Imagine Hollywood likes to play with schizophrenia and psychotic disorders. Why? Because they're so odd and you know, bizarre that, again, it's, it's, it's interesting for people to watch, right? So they do a lot of fictional kind of depictions of people. Um, but this might be the person who, under their ball cap, puts a piece of aluminum foil. Because what they believe is that people are reading their brain waves, right? They're picking them up. And so if I put aluminum foil there, it protects them from someone stealing their thoughts or, or you know, putting thoughts into their head. That's the other one, thought insertion, that people are sticking thoughts into their head. Because in some ways, maybe I have a little bit of touch with reality and I know this is odd, but I can't control it. So somebody must be pushing it, putting it there because I can't control it. So again, these are all examples. Questions about any of those? Now, what about sensation and perception? Well, psychosis involves disturbances in sensation and perception too. So um, people feel like they have false sensory experiences. The world may seem flat, unreal, um, remote, um, objects seem unusually large or small, so their perceptions are off in some way. Um, time passes with unusual slowness or rapidness. Um, they may have hallucinations, false sensory experiences, um, which there's no identifiable cause. And if you give someone with psychosis, like a, a, you know, a, a lie detector test, they will pass. They believe they hear voices. There was a deaf inmate that I worked with in the prison. He uh, had schizophrenia. He believed he could hear his mother talking to him. Now he's been deaf since birth. But he knew his mother's voice. He said he knew his mother's voice. Now there were many other symptoms too, but he, he believed his mom would talk to him. And again, there's no, there's, there's no belief of that. There's no way to, to say that's happening. Um, there was an inmate who uh, believed that um, it was right around this time of the year, right around the fall. They kicked the heating system in on the pr prison, in the prison. And you can imagine you kick in a heating system that hasn't been used or you know, a, a circulation system that hasn't been used. Initially, there's a little bit of dust that comes through the system. It's what happens, right? But he, this inmate, thought that it was poison. There was nothing that could be done to calm him down. He believed there was poison. So he asked that him and his roommate be moved to another cell because he believed that he was, he was in danger, right? So we moved him to another cell that did take that away, but then he started to believe that, again, his food was poisoned, he wouldn't eat, he wouldn't take his meds, and that's usually what you see. Again, they, on meds, they can, they can be very normal, but the meds have side effects, and so I stopped taking the meds, and then I started getting paranoid or questionable or stop believing things and then I start kind of pulling away and then I start to decompensate and before I I'm aware that I'm decompensating I'm already off I'm already too far gone and I hate to say it that way but that's really what you see so you see these repetitive cycles of medication and then falling apart and then medication compliance and then falling apart and then back and forth 
So what are some of the hallucinations that can happen? Well, auditory hallucinations, hearing voices. This is the most common type of hallucination is hearing voices. Sometimes it might be voices that seem clear. Um, some, usually it's more than one voice at the same time. Sometimes it's yelling. Sometimes it's competing voices. Sometimes it's just low-level sounds that you can't really make out. More, you know, maybe thuds, things like that. Um, sometimes it might be screaming, but again, you can't make a clear, you know, you can't clearly define what's being said. So auditory hallucinations, visual hallucinations. Visual hallucinations have to do with, again, lights or moving objects, places, people. Um, and and uh, the best example I can give you is, have you ever been walking down like through your apartment or through your house late at night and you thought you saw something out of the corner of your eye? And you turn quickly to look and there's nothing there. And you just kind of write it off, right? Because it, it, maybe it was the fluttering of the, the curtain as you walk by. I mean, maybe it was just a wind, you know, outside the window or something as you walk by. Maybe just a reflection off the refrigerator or something, right? It could have been anything. So you just kind of write it off and don't think anything about it. They can't write it off. They see it. And when they turn to look, it's still there. They do seem to see things that nobody else sees. And that's why it's so frustrating because they're like, can't you see that? Can't, can't you see that? That's why they get so upset. And that's why there's social withdrawal. Because nobody else sees what I see. I'm not going to talk to anyone. I'm just going to pull myself away. Gustatory hallucinations involve the perception of taste, most often a pleasant, unpleasant one. So an unpleasant one, you know, poison, somebody's putting something in their food, the food tastes like it's rotten, something like that. Olfactory hallucinations involve odors, again, usually unpleasant ones. Somatic hallucinations, false sensations experienced as coming from inside the body. So feeling like something's inside your skin, you can feel it moving under your skin, you can, you can feel something, you know, crawling around inside you in some way. And then tactile hallucinations, which are kind of something, um, uh, someone's touching you from the outside or something being just beneath the skin. So again, one is more deep, if you will, symptoms from more deep within, and other more surface, more tactile, more on the surface. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. So, disturbances in motor movement, you asked about this earlier, and here we go, here's a whole slide about it to kind of go a little further. So, psychotic persons may engage in strange stereotype gestures, postures, um, facial grimaces, um, and we call that catatonia. And we, we used to have a kind of schizophrenia called catatonic schizophrenia, but again, now we kind of encompass them all together. There's catatonic immobility, cease uh, the bodily movements altogether, so they just freeze. They may, they be, may become almost stone-like. Um, sometimes if you worked in a state hospital and you saw someone in a catatonic state, they might just be kind of leaning up against the wall, like in mid-step. And if you go to move them or touch them, they're not going to move. Um, once had a, a student, um, when I taught at the Lebanon campus, and they worked on a, um, in a group home with schizophrenics, um, individuals who suffered from schizophrenia, I should say. 
And one of them had a unique way of eating breakfast. They would eat very routinely, very stereotypically. So imagine I'm sitting at the table. You can't see this at home. I apologize for that. There's no real way to kind of describe it. But um, so imagine you're sitting at the table. You got the bowl of soup or you know cereal in front of you. You hold your spoon almost like you know with the, your hand clenched, almost like a fist. And they would scoop down and come straight up and then scoop over towards them, right? That's how they would eat. So they would, and this is what they would do. So then, and then, because they had catatonia, they would come halfway up and they would freeze. And they may sit there, staring straight ahead. Their bowl of soup sitting there, or you know, cereal. Their spoon halfway towards their mouth, their mouth half open, and they're just sitting there. I, the way that I can describe it, it's almost like there's a disconnect. Like the things that were happening somehow get short-circuited and go right out the window. So they're halfway through the movement, and then 45 minutes later, they would continue with the spoon to their face and then they would continue to eat. Again, this is why Hollywood picks on this because it's so odd. I mean, you know, you can, I, I mean, I, unfortunately, a lot of people with schizophrenia are made fun of, you know, so that people make fun of that kind of catatonic state. But um, again, it's very, imagine if you were experiencing that, like a complete disconnect from reality for that period of time and then you return back in. There's also catatonic excitement or excitability. It's wildly excited, violently, or unpredicted movements. Um, so that's one of the other things. Again, um, I have one video. I don't know if I have time to show it to you. But there's a guy, he just kind of sits there and he just kind of does this for, for 45 minutes. He's just rocking in his chair, always in the same way. Just repetitive rocking, stereotype movements. Another one that kind of flips with his hands. And this is all they do. They just, this is their, their pattern. So it's that kind of ritualistic kind of stereotypic behaviors that you see over and over again. Um, waxy inflexibility and echoprexia, which imitates the movements of others. So you see someone do something like maybe I scratch my head and then you scratch your head. Right, you did it just, I know, but it was really good. It was almost timed. Like we should have filmed that. It would have been perfect, right? So again, I scratch my head, you, you do the same thing. Just like the echoprexia or echolalia, where I'm repeating what someone says, echoprexia, I'm repeating their behaviors. So it's what we see. I had one inmate who had a unique walk. He was schizophrenic, and um, he would walk across uh, the prison grounds, and he, he would do this really elongated step, so he would almost bounce as he walked. This was his way of walking wherever he went. So he had this almost bounce in his step and he would just walk across the grounds like this, right? And it didn't matter how fast he went or how slow he went, he would always walk that way. And I remember I was walking with him one day, right? And we were walking back to the unit and I said, you know, you've got some really cool stride going on there. And he stopped and I think that I upset him because he stopped and he looked at me and then he tried to walk normal but then within a short amount of time, he got back into that stride and he couldn't stop himself. So again, it's just his move, movements. I don't think maybe he liked the idea that I pointed it out. 
Maybe he wasn't aware. But again, that's some of the stuff that we see. And again, these are all signs of psychosis. Emotional disturbances that we see in psychosis, flattened affect. So a flattened emotional response. You know, um, the definition they have here is an emotional state in psychotic conditions characterized by a lack of range of emotions or emotions are very shallow or they're blunted or flattened in some way. So you go, you know, maybe they find out that their parent died and they go, okay. And you go, well, isn't that disturbing you? I, you know, no, not really. I, I, it is, but, you know, they, but their emotions are so flat. You, again, I, you know, think about it. It's just kind of this compacted state, if you will. They have mutism. They might not, again, speak. Um, anhedonia, which is a lack of enjoyment in all aspects of life, a lack of pleasure, if you will. So they tend to, to lack that. And they tend to have inappropriate emotions. Maybe their emotional expressions um, have no clear relationship to the events. They may laugh at a funeral, and not out of nervousness, but just because they just, they just don't, get the, they don't, they don't get the connection. You know? So again, they, it's, it's different. It's, and it's not caused by nerves or anxiety. This is different. It's a detachment. You can see that it's different. It has that feel that it's different. You as the outside observer say, that seems odd, you know. I, I'll, I'll tell you, I loved working with people with psychosis. I found it fascinating. I really did. I once had a, a drug and alcohol um, client that I was working with, and he was, uh, this was way back when I was early in, in counseling, and I didn't, I didn't know a lot. You know, some would still say I probably don't know a lot today, but back in the day when I knew even less, um, there was a, a, one of the, another counselor, at that time I was doing drug and alcohol work, and I, there was a counselor who was doing um, substance abuse um, counseling. And he was this, or no, I was doing drug and alcohol work, he was doing mental health counseling. And he was this big, brawny, you know, biker guy. Imagine like a biker guy, right? We worked for the county, he wore blue jeans and a black leather vest, biker vest, right? to work every day in his biker boots. And they tried to, you know, they, they said, you need to dress more appropriately. And he said, nowhere in my county contract does it say that there's a dress code. So I can wear whatever I want to. I'm appropriate for this place. Uh, unless you would like to, to argue that further, I'll take it to the county commissioners. Like, you know, that was, he was that bold. But he was, you know, he, he, was a, he was a cool guy. He loved working with schizophrenics. And I remember sitting down with him once and I said, what is it about, you know, how do you approach someone that says, you know, they're hearing voices? He goes, this is what I do. I look at him, I say, you know what the difference between you and me is? You hear voices and you follow them and listen to them. I hear voices and I don't give them any time. I just keep moving on. And I thought, okay, all right. And I believe maybe he did hear some voices, but he, but he functioned. He, he, he just, he heard them and let them go. He didn't pay any attention to them. And, you know, there is some research that says that ignoring voices, ignoring some of the hallucinations can be done uh, by certain individuals if you have that ability. Not everyone can do it, but, you know, that was just one of the ways. 
Social withdrawal, this is the last kind of characteristic that we talked about in one of those first slides. Schizophrenic individuals tend to avoid close interpersonal relationships. You can understand why. Nobody else is experiencing what they're experiencing. People are telling them that what they're experiencing is false, it's not real. Um, they tend to spend much of their time alone. They tend to retreat more and more into their own fantasy world. Um, oftentimes, um, we'll watch for decompensation in the prison because what you'll see is someone will go off their meds. They'll stop attending dinner. Like they won't go to, to, to the lunchroom, right? Um, they'll won't go take a shower. You know, so two, three, four days, they may not shower. Their hygiene goes downhill. They're not shaving. They're not taking care of themselves. They're not cleaning up, right? And so you look for these, and they're not bothering anyone but themselves or maybe the roommate if they have a roommate, and the roommate can't stand it anymore. But again, if they're in a single cell by themselves, they're not bothering anyone, but you, they're falling apart, essentially, is what's happening. Um, withdrawal is both physical and psychological, and you see that. Not just physically withdraw from other people, but psychologically, mentally, I'm not there either. So, what about the DSM-5 criteria? Well, here's what we, here's what we have, right? Although psychotic disorders are discussed together in DSM-5, there's no assumption that these disorders share a common cause. So someone who has delusional disorder may have a different cause completely than someone that has schizophrenia. There's no assumption that they're linked in any way. They just happen to be grouped together because they have similar symptoms. All right? So don't think that there's a common pathway. Don't think there's a common cause or even a, cond or a, a, a common fundamental set of even symptoms. Delusional disorder, again, I could have a delusion, but I don't have all these other things, but we call them psychotic uh, psychosis because of, again, the impact they have on the person's you know, personality, their interaction with the world, and who they are. So again, that's what we see. Schizotypal personality disorder, remember we talked about that in the personality disorders. That was in the cluster A set. And the DSM-5 considers, uh, DSM considers within the schizophrenic spectrum, but it's included in, D in uh, personality disorders. So schizotypal, again, that one that seems odd, kind of eccentric. They want social interactions, but they don't quite fit in. They almost seem delusional, but they still have their basis in reality. According to DSM-5, that could be put in the psychotic category, in the psychosis category. In this, you know, schizophrenia and other psychotic disorders, it could be put there. But because it's a personality disorder, we tend to group it again with the personality disorders, and that's what we what we did in this in this you know textbook and in in this class. Um, psychotic symptoms can appear transient during periods of stress in individuals with many different conditions. Do not in themselves verify the presence of a psychotic disorder. Again. You could have a psychotic break. I put quotes around that. So a psychotic break, a break from reality. You might have heard um, some of your grandparents or maybe your parents talk about someone who had a case of the nerves, right? They were hospitalized for a short period of time. They fell apart. Maybe the loss of a loved one or one of their ch children passed away in a tragic way. You know, something happened and they, they just fell apart. It was beyond their ability to cope. We might call it an adjustment disorder, but maybe it's so extreme that adjustment disorder doesn't define it well. So something more. 
So it might be what we might call here a brief psychotic reaction. Again, a temporary discrete period of time where a person has transient, temporary, psychotic type symptoms that are so impactful they are altering the person's life for a period of time. Again, that's some of the stuff that we see. Um, notice it says symptom pattern and degree of impairment differs within the psychotic disorders of, as well. So here's our chart. Um, we always have a chart, so this is going to be our chart here. We're going to go through it. Again, I said at the beginning of uh, the recording, and my goal, this is f there's 46 slides here, is to make it through as many as we can. If we can make it to slide 30, I'll be happy. Um, and then we'll have 15 slides left, and we can do that and watch some videos next class. So kind of cool, just something to look forward to. So the first set of disorders, schizophrenia, the key symptoms are delusions, hallucinations, disordered speech, and behavior. Notice the minimum requirement has to be present for six months, right? It's one of the things that we talk about and more common among males. So again, the diagnosis has to be there for a period of time. It can't just be a temporary or transient thing because again, we have other disorders that can, can classify that. Number two is schizophreniform disorder. Schizophreniform, think about what that terminology says. Schizophreniform, a form of schizophrenia, right? So that's what schizophreniform disorder is, a form of schizophrenia. So schizophreniform disorder, the same as schizophrenia, but duration is less than six months. In fact, what is required for the schizophreniform disorder is at least one month. Slightly more common in males. I'm going to skip down here to the next one. Brief psychotic disorder. Delusions, hallucinations, disorganized speech, but duration is less than a month. So let's say something happens and you break from reality, right? For longer than a day, this tends to be more common in females. The best example, and you might say, why more common in females? Think about there's usually a stressor present. Um, maybe a person is sexually assaulted, okay? And they fall apart. And, and, and I, you know, that's the best layman terms I can give. They fall apart. They lose touch with reality. They're so impacted by that. So for one month, or less than one month, they, are, they, are fall, they, are, they seem to show signs of psychosis. They're delusional. Maybe they're hallucinating, they're socially withdrawing, their speech is all over the place, their emotions are all over the place, they, can't, they, they just lose touch with reality, okay? So if it happens for one month, we call it brief psychotic disorder. Now it's gone for one month and one day, okay? Now it's gone longer than a month. Now it falls into the schizophreniform disorder, a form of schizophrenia. So symptoms have lasted longer than one month, right? So now we call it schizophreniform disorder. There may or may not be a stressor present. Okay? And if it fades before six months hits, then the person never developed schizophrenia. They had schizophreniform disorder, nothing more. But let's say that it lasts for six months plus one day. Now we call it full-blown schizophrenia. So that's how it works. Brief psychotic disorder for up to one month, from one month to six months, schizophreniform disorder, for more than six months, schizophrenia. 
questions? So it's kind of how they're interconnected, if you will. All right. We also see here in the middle schizoaffective disorder. We did have a presentation on that too, right? A mood disorder, hallucinations, delusions, all occurring together, uh, more common in females. Um, the duration has to be at least two weeks of the co-occurring illness. So more than likely, they're already defined as having a, a psychotic disorder, um, something like schizophrenia. And now for at least two weeks, they've had their mood disorder on top of it. Voila. Now we're going to call it schizoaffective. Because if they had the depression first, right? Think about this. If they had the depression first, for major depression, the requirement is that you have a mood disorder for at least two weeks. So you got major depression for at least two weeks. And then you lose track with reality. We can call it major depression with psychosis. So that's not schizoaffective. This is almost like the schizophrenia comes first and then the depressive disorder happens over top of it. Does that kind of make sense? Okay. And then the last one you see down here is delusional disorder. And I already kind of mentioned that to you before. Those are those non-bizarre delusions without other symptoms present. Again, it lasts for about a month um, and it could be equal male or female. So there's no real requirement or sex difference, gender difference, I should say. Questions about any of those? All right. So let's talk about schizophrenia. Let's at least make it through that disorder. That tends to be the biggest one here, and so it tends to tend take a little bit more time. Currently, the diagnosis for schizophrenia? Okay. All right. So currently, the diagnosis for schizophrenia requires two psychotic symptoms during a one-month active phase. So there seems to be three phases to a schizophrenic uh, pattern. The first phase is what we call the prodromal phase. The prodromal phase is the lead-in. We then have the active phase. And the active phase is where you see active psychotic symptoms, right? And then we have the residual, and that's the end. That's after those psychotic symptoms have passed. So we see that general pattern, right? So, Currently, the diagnosis of schizophrenia requires two psychotic symptoms during a one-month active phase, one of which must be delusions, hallucinations, or disorganized speech. They at least have to have that, one of those three. And then the other one could be anything else. Um, in earlier versions of the DSM, the diagnosis would only be given um, with one active psychotic symptoms, either bizarre delusions or auditory hallucinations were present, now we've backed off and we've said, no, 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 you have to have two. That can be one of them, but there's got to be something else. DSM-5 removed this provision in a large part because it was difficult to distinguish between what's bizarre and what's non-bizarre. Is it my uncle, for example, who believes we didn't make it to the moon? Is that bizarre? To those who believe in moon, you know, in space travel, it seems that way but maybe to others it doesn't seem so bizarre. How about the guy from uh, the prison that I told you about who was waiting for the president to send him a letter to free him for defending his own property? Is that bizarre? Is it not bizarre? Again, that's too, it's too iffy, it's too subjective, and so now we just say, you've gotta have at least one symptom of these three and then another symptom, all right? 
Schizophrenia involves either a decline from a prior level of functioning or a failure to meet expected levels. So in other words, they have a, they're falling apart. They don't, they don't seem to hold it together as well. This change is usually apparent to others who know the person. So again, the person may not be aware of their change. And again, a doctor might not know it, but you, the, the friend, the loved one, the person that's you know, actively involved with them sees the decompensation, right? The condition, as a condition of diagnosis, the signs of the disorder must be present or persist for at least six months. Now notice what it says. Much of that time, except for one month, can either be in residual or the prodromal phase. So the lead-in, you start to see them socially withdraw. You start to see them pull back from taking their medication. That's the lead-in. We talk about the six months, that can be part of that six months. The social withdrawal, right? Now they're actively psychotic, okay? So for one month, they're actively showing signs of psychosis. Detachment from reality, emotional uh, flatness, right? And then those symptoms seem to pass, but the residual means there's something left over. Residual, it's what's left over after the, the thing has passed. Um, those are uh, attenuated symptoms that follow the active phase. So again, the symptoms, some of the symptoms continue. You're not actively psychotic right now, but there's still symptoms that you're suffering from something. And when we add all three together, the, res the, the prodromal, the, the active, and the residual phase, now we have at least six months. It's not six months of active psychosis. It doesn't have to be that way. Does that make sense? So, just so we're clear on that. So the course of schizophrenia, all right? Again, the prodromal phase is the onset or buildup of schizophrenic symptoms. The active phase is the full-blown symptoms, severe disturbances in thinking, deterioration in social relationships, flat or inappropriate affect. We see that, you know, kind of actively taking over the person's life. The residual phase are, again, symptoms are no longer prominent. Major symptoms but there's still other things that are left over. That's some of the stuff that we see. Questions? All right. And notice it says complete recovery is rare. That's one of the things to keep in mind with schizophrenia. Complete recovery is rare. O on their own. Yes? So does that mean like recovered more like a circle and Yeah, it's kind of like more like a circle than a course. I'll, I'll agree with that. There are some different patterns, and I believe on the next slide I have a chart. Yeah. So what I'm going to do is on the next slide, in fact, I'll just, I'll just flip there. You know, so keep in mind, um, what we're saying is that they rarely remit completely. But they can still live normal lives. It's just they might have some symptoms that are left over. The residual stays, stays around. So here are some of the different courses that are found in schizophrenia. There was research done, and... Um, this is what they found, that in about 12% of the cases of schizophrenia, if you're going to have schizophrenia, you want course one. I'm just telling you. You want schizophrenia, you want course one. Schizophrenia course one is where a person has only one episode, one impairment, and then after it fades, they never have another episode for the rest of their life. Now, it's gone on for at least six months. So they've met the criteria for schizophrenia. But their diagnosis after that is schizophrenia in remission. It goes away and never returns. But that only happens in about 12% of the cases. 
In the second course, course two, um, about 14 or 15 percent of the cases. Now we're at about 25, a quarter of the cases. What you see is several episodes, but every time that they come out of it, they always return back to normal with no other symptoms present. So I have a break, I get better, I seem to get stable, I return back to my normal level of functioning, and then somewhere later on in my life, I have another break, but then I return back to normal and there's no residual leftover. Does that make sense? If you wanted to have, if you didn't have just a single episode of schizophrenia, then you want this one. And you might go, why do I want this one? Because you're always returning back to normal. There's no leftover symptoms present. That's big. And that only happens again in about a quarter of the cases where you have one or multiple episodes but always return back to normal. Here's where it starts getting scary. Course three, about 17% of the cases fall into this category. Here, you can see a person has a, an active period of time. So this is a six month period of time. But when they come out of it, after that first episode, there's always residual symptoms around. They never get back to normal. Always a little off from that point forward. So it says impairment with the first episode with symptoms of anxiety or depression, and they always linger. Always there. So this person is having multiple times. They never get any worse in between the breaks, but they don't get any better between the breaks either. In other words, they get better to a point, but there's a little bit left over. Does that make sense? So 17% of the cases. Here's where it gets scary. And this is the biggest concern for med compliance, in my opinion, okay? Course four, 33% of those with schizophrenia have this fourth course of if progression. And this is why it's scary. So notice, they start out here at baseline, they have a, an active phase, a schizophrenic break, then there's some leftover. But then every time they have a break, they never return back to where they started before. So with every break, they get a little worse in between. With every break, a little bit more sticks around. So impairment increasing with each of the several episodes followed by negative symptoms. And negative symptoms are symptoms that don't go away with treatment. They tend to be more chronic. That's why we call them negative symptoms. Positive symptoms are things like hallucinations and delusions. And you might go, why are they positive? Well, they're added to the person. There's something that wasn't there before. And they're positive because they go away with treatment. Negative symptoms are something removed from the person, social withdrawal. And they don't tend to go away after they come back. In fact, what happens is, in this case, they tend to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. 33% of the cases. There was an inmate that I was working with. He had schizophrenia. And, uh, you know, he was a little odd. You know, he probably wasn't initially, but he was. You know, he'd had a couple breaks. And so he was on medication. Well, he would go off his medication, and we would talk to him. You know, stay on your medication. If you have another break, a little bit more of you is going to slip away into the abyss. Of course, they don't listen because the medication has side effects that, again, people don't like, dry mouth that will not go away, no matter how much water you drink. Um, 
problems with, uh, with uh, maintaining or obtaining an erection, you might go, wait, the guy's in prison, why does he need an erection? Hey, I'm just telling you, people like to feel like they can still perform whether they have an opportunity to or not. Does that make sense? So the fact that I can't get an erection is a problem for me as a male, just saying. So that's one of the things you would see. So I don't want that. I don't want that in jail. I can't, you know, masturbate or do whatever it is that I wanted to do with an erection, right? So, um, so this person, they were doing good. They were a janitor. They were actually a janitor in a high security area because they were relatively stable. They were odd, but they were stable. Of course, they went off their meds, had another break. And when they came back out of it, back on medication, more of their negative symptoms took, you know, came back. They couldn't even return back to the job they were at because they were more odd. I, I hate to say it that way, but I mean, they were. They just weren't as stable to go back to that job. So then they had to start all over again from scratch in a lower paying job that was you know, a little bit more, I, I don't wanna say demeaning, but just wasn't the job that they had looked forward to every day. Does that make sense? We tried to talk to him. Every time you have a break, a little bit more of you is gone. But 33% of the cases, this is what we see. And then the final course, course five, happens in about 10% of the cases, 11%. The person has a schizophrenic break but never seems to return. The symptoms stick around, even with medication. Medication will control them to a certain degree, but it's still there. So that's what we see. Impairment with no recovery after the first episode. So in 10% of the cases, it's that severe. You know, so you have the one extreme, 12% of the cases, one break, return back to normal, never have another break again. And then the other extreme, 10% of the cases, you have a break and never come back. And then there's variations in between. So it's some of the stuff that we see. Now, I'm gonna pause right here. Does this sound good? So we're at slide 20. So remember that when we get back together again, slide 20, all right? So thanks for listening.